You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome. Stu Goldsmith here again with part two of the Jimmy Carr Returns live episode of the Comedian's Comedian podcast. Now, if you haven't heard part one, what are you doing? Go and listen to part one. Um, This is part two in which we're going to talk about all sorts of stuff. We'll hear about some of uh, Jimmy's favourite heckles that he's ever heard of, not just ones he's experienced himself. Um, We'll hear a little bit about some of his celeb stories and uh, the decisions he made with them. We're going to get stuck right into tax and find out how he has become the confessor for the entertainment industry industry. Um, And as well, we're going to find out a little bit about anxiety, his anxiety disorder and the panic attack he had on stage in front of thousands of people. All of that coming up uh, in just a few short moments. There are no extras from this episode because uh, I think we had about two hours gleaned from five different live recordings. Uh, All of this takes place on stage with me interviewing Jimmy in a variety of locations after he's just done an absolutely killer hour to a room of a thousand plus often screaming fans. I mean, there's the expression screaming fans. Uh, Some of these certainly screamed. Here's Jimmy Carr. Yeah, so I mean, I became a father, which is, it was quite an interesting thing because I wrote, uh, you know, uh, you know, you not worry, but you think, was this is going to change me. It's like my favourite, my favourite sort of thought on childhood, uh, on becoming a father is like, it's like having a procedure where your heart now lives outside your body. That's what happens. Mm. And it's beautiful. And I was kind of slightly nervous that it might soften me. And then I went to buy... So we were in uh, St Mary's. We had the baby in St Mary's in Paddington. And he was so tiny, none of the clothes that we brought in for the baby grows fit. So I had to go and buy baby clothes. And I was buying these tiny little baby grows. And the the lady in the shop said, "Uh, do you want the coat hangers? And I said, it's a bit late for that. (laughs) I still, I still got it, baby. I still got, I still got the fastball. Do you, do you think, because one of the things we know about you, and you talk about it in the book, is you love everything to do with comedy. You love the journeying, the travel, the getting up at 5.30 and getting on a plane somewhere, you know, driving back at half one in the morning. You love all, all of, all of the stuff to do with I've it. I've sort of got a holistic sort of theory on, like, what, for what it's worth, I try not to get jealous of anyone. I think our industry, the, the, the problem with showbiz, the only real problem with showbiz, and a problem with a lot of life is um, compare and despair. You know, a comparison is the thief of joy. You can have a fucking great life, but you, someone's always doing better, or they've got more, or they're laughing, whatever it is. So the idea of just going, look, don't be jealous of anyone. And if, you, if you have to be, be jealous of the whole thing. 
There's very few people you'd swap lives with. Yeah. Because you go, yeah, he's got a better career than me, but oh, look at his wife. Fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to ask, though, was do you, do you anticipate... I remember with, before I became a dad, I thought, as a circuit comedian, I thought, I've got five years from the moment of having a child to get off the comedy circuit. Because by the time my son goes to school, he's going to be flying a desk. He's only free at evenings and weekends. And if that's when you're always working, are you still going to have the same love for getting out there and gigging and touring when there is, what they say, the pram in the hallway, when actually there's a really compelling reason to be at home in order to spend your life with your children? I think I might try and do it differently, but I don't think I'd stop. I think most, most parents don't have the luxury of sitting around with their kids all day. Most, you know, yeah, but only till they go to school. Can you tell my son's just started going to school? Yeah. I'm freaking out about it. <laughs> it's fine though, isn't it? I mean, it's like you see them when you see them. Most, you know, the, the thing is, the way that the working week is set up, and maybe it will change now, maybe this will be the good thing that comes out of the, there's got to be a fucking silver lining to the 18 months we've had, but maybe some of that working, home, you know, working from home stuff will mean you, you're around more. One of, the, uh, one of the things in the book that I wondered if you were going to cover, and then when we got to it, about halfway through the book, I thought, oh, here we go, was uh, your financial exploits. Who, th- who, me? <laughs> well, I think if you bought a book by me pretending to be an autobiography and I didn't mention my tax planning, you would feel quite short-changed. <laughs> Very much like HMRC did. Uh, well, the, I mean, the, the weird thing about like, People seem interested in it. Do you want to know how much money I saved in tax? Yeah. Fuck all. <laughs> Despite quite a lot of effort on my part. <laughs> I mean, literally, it couldn't have gone any worse for me. I'm the only person in this room that would have been better off taking financial advice from a Nigerian general over email. <laughs> it, could, it couldn't have gone... Well, and, then, and then, you know, the, I don't know if you remember... I remember, obviously, you're the only person that reads all your press, but like, the sequence in which those things happen. So the story dropped on a Monday morning. Mm-hmm. So you get the call on a Sunday night, and they go, it's the papers. <laughs> and you think, fuck. So they ring, but they I ring thought, in- my initial thought was... I've told a joke about something and someone's offended. I'll roll those dice all day. You know, I don't mind telling offensive jokes. That's the game that I'm in. That's my job. That's an occupational hazard. Sometimes, you know, it's never about offending people, but, yeah. And they rang you. And they, they rang me and then they went, it's about you. your tax planning. And you go, have you got any comment? And I went, fuck. <laughs> And I had like a vague idea I was doing some aggressive tax planning. Like you've got an idea, you know, you know you've, t- you've taken the phone call from the guy and he's gone, ah, oh, do you want, you know, we can do this thing. It's a scheme. Is it legal? Yeah, it's legal. Is it totally, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, and then the Wednesday, the prime, uh, this is a good, you become an expert, right? You become, something like that happens. You get publicly shamed in the papers. You learn a thing or two. Every day's a school day. So... I, I, I learned something, right? If you get a letter through from HMRC demanding money with menaces, do the responsible thing, pop it in the recycling. <laughs> if, on the other hand, if the Prime Minister of the country that you live in breaks off from the G20 summit, he was like in a meeting with Obama, came out early to do a press conference where he talked about nothing other than my personal tax affairs. <laughs> that is going to be a problem. Although, in my defence, I never fucked a pig. So... <laughs> Yeah, that is, it's a wake-up call, though. When David Cameron, the man that gave us austerity, goes, you're morally reprehensible. Yeah. Fuck. And it, well, I suppose in the middle of cancel culture, it's a pretty good thing to be cancelled for, financial impropriety. 
because it was pretty easy to know what to do. I'll pay the money back and I'll say I'm sorry. Okay, and that was like... Mm. It's it's more complex now, cancel culture, because there's certain things that... There's that lovely phrase, we cannot forgive what we cannot punish. Mm. So sometimes people get into trouble for shit and we don't know what to do and then they're just left hanging. And it pains me to say it as a proud atheist, but religion does it better. Mm. Religion does forgiveness and redemption much better than, than, than the secular world. And it, from the outside, it's really interesting to hear that because I think part of why the papers, just my theory, part of why people went for you so much at the time was that you are such a high-status presence. You always win. In every encounter we see you on in TV, you're the funniest one, you're the host, you're the person in charge. And they wanted to knock you down. I don't know if... I mean, uh, the high-status thing, I think... I sort of think at gigs, and you'll sort of see this when I'm going to do a sequence at the end with all the messages that you sent me... Um, but I think sometimes the hecklers win, but that's fine. Within, within the confines of this space, it's like, it's fine. It doesn't matter who's getting the laugh. It's all right. I think it was also, I think, I mean, Anne Robertson and Gary Barlow and a bunch of us were kind of that week in the papers for doing tax avoidance schemes. And I now know the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance. Mm. 18 months in prison. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ho, ho. Um, the... But that thing of like, I think they went for me because I think it was, I think they were, they were a bit annoyed at how much money I had, which but, seems reasonable. But one well, of the things... just telling fucking jokes. We've all got jokes, mate. I just mean that in, in the book, recognising the sort of deep and devastating impact that it had on you, it wasn't something where you were just like, whoops, I'd better retreat for a bit. You oh. were having panic attacks. You well, were... I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I presume people's perception of me is that I didn't care. I was fucking broken. Fucking broken. I didn't sleep for about a week. That, that episode of Cats that we did that week was, I mean, it was, I, like, it was zombie-like through the week. Because it was, yeah, it was like, it was like, oh, fuck, Bullshit. I'm... What, sorry? Bullshit. Bullshit. <laughs> There's no reason for me to bullshit you, man. Like, so I've got a bit of an anxiety disorder at the best of times, and this was the worst of times. So I was like... Uh, I took some beta blockers sort of on the day and then basically didn't sleep for about sort of four nights. And then it was like, it was like, because it's, you know, you, you, feel, you feel shame and you feel guilt and you feel like I've got this incredible life and I fucked it. Mm. And that's like, oh, Jesus, I might not work again. Because you, you don't know, in, the, in that moment as well, you don't know whether from the outside whether you'll be forgiven or not. I love you too. Um, yeah. Go on. Did you know? Did you know? Or were you just following advice? Well, I, I knew enough. I, I, I knew enough that it's, it's, I would never go, oh, my financial advisor's misled me. No, I'm, I'm a smart enough guy. I couldn't use the footballer get out of going, hey, I'm a fucking idiot. I don't think anyone's, no one's, <laughs> no one's buying that. And I certainly knew that I wasn't paying enough tax. But then, I, I mean, the year. The, the year I paid it back, I think I paid more, more tax than Starbucks. I did, you know, it's like... Although, that's not saying much. So did you. I mean... It is, uh, it is interesting the way this has turned into the biggest jury in Britain. Yeah. Good. Yeah, no one likes paying tax. Yeah, a lot of people like... i tell you who was good. Builders were good. Guys on building sites were good. When I walk past building sites, all right, Jim? Hey, hey. <laughs> and ca- cab drivers in London were like, you've done nothing wrong. <laughs> you've done nothing wrong, son. Cash, is it? 
when you when you went on telly that night, when you did Cats that night, right, how did you feel going into it, knowing that you were going to be... Well, it's often that thing of, like, when you do stand-up, it's, your, it's you, right? One person on stage, you, you know, succeed or fail, it's you. When you're on TV, it's, a, it's like a team sport. And the most important person on the team is not the presenter, it's the producer. And the producer is the lady called Ruth Phillips, who took me to one side that afternoon, and I was in a bit of a state, and she just went, you've just got to fucking take it. Don't say anything funny back. Fucking take your medicine. They're going to take the piss out of you. Mm. Just fucking laugh along or look forlorn, whatever you want to do. Fucking take your medicine. Shut the fuck up. Mm. And best advice I've been given. I mean, best advice. You know, I, I, you know, because... And then Sean was there. Mickey Flanagan was there. Sarah Millican was there. Ripped into me. We're just... Like, they were friends. They cared. They were just fucking funny. And that's what it needed. It was like... That episode of Cats was like me being in the, in the stocks... And you have a bit of fruit thrown at you and you go, okay, right, we're, we're kind of... Yeah. A roast, yeah. Well, sorry? Who all got away with it? Everyone else? <laughs> I, could, I could tell you who got away with it. Not them, but I could... Because <laughs> obviously now, I'm like the confessor. <laughs> like, and seriously, any celebrity you know that has any kind of financial impropriety has called me and gone, Jim, what should I do about this? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, say, I'm not saying nothing. <laughs> it's in the next book. Um, <laughs> if the advance is big enough. <laughs> so, with, uh, with what was I going to ask you? Just about the, the fact that it was such a, a kind of a trying time for you. There was the sort of the public face of it, the private face. Did you have people around you looking after you? Or did you feel very kind of alone? Was anyone checking in on you? Uh, no, it was fairly... I mean... I suppose it's, it's a weird thing where your public persona isn't who you are and it's not how you see yourself. Like my hairline. <laughs> yeah. Doing the best I can. I'm doing this for you. If I hadn't had the hair redone, the glare, take your fucking retina out. Uh, <laughs> the, yeah, it was, a, it was kind of a lonely week. I mean, that, the anxiety thing is like, I, suffer, I don't know how many people buy, buy round of applause. Anyone else suffer anxiety? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a weird one because it's like it, you can sort of deal with it, but it's horrible. Mm. And if you get an anxiety attack, like a full panic attack, you don't feel comfortable in your own skin. You can't sit down. You can't stand up. You kind of can't, you can't eat, but you're hungry. You can't sleep, but you're tired. It's like it's fight or flight is kind of going on, and that can be very hard. But... I try and see the positive of anxiety. I try and see it in the light of going, look, if you're creative in any way and you've got a creative mind, the downside of that is it'll sometimes catch on to anxiety and yeah. wake you up in the middle of the night or not let you get to sleep or whatever that thing is. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm grateful for the mind that I've got, but it's a, it's a pain in the ass. And in the, in the book, you talk about actually having a panic attack. I think you were in Perth or Melbourne, somewhere in Australia, yeah. and you actually had a panic attack on stage mid-show, mm. but are just so well-versed in the show that you can just crack on and kind of perform whilst flipping out. Yeah, but I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's good for you mentally, but yeah, I was able to... I you know, had a panic attack on stage and no one noticed, but it was, it's one of those things where you go... Because there isn't like a physical manifestation. You could be absolutely in bits with anxiety and still function, but it's just you feel terrible. Mm. Um, so yeah, I don't think that's... I remember like about a year later, Pink. You know the singer Pink? Um, 
had a like she took a mental health day in uh, it was the same place in Australia and she maybe there's something about the water there but <laughs> she was in an arena and just cancelled the show and said no I need to take a mental health day and I really think that's a very sensible option like I should have done that and just gone look I need a little bit of self care but it's like I couldn't I couldn't even sort of think about that at the time mm. it's often like your perspective goes if you suffer a bout of depression or anxiety your perspective is gone. I think that's why the, you know, the epidemic of suicide, not to bring the mood down. Uh, but th- that's why, because you go, it's, it's, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. But yeah. you can't see that it's temporary when you're in the middle of it. Was that part of the drive for the book to be kind of half autobiography, half self-help? I think the idea was, yeah, there's, there's, there's a certain subset of people that like my shows and like my comedy that will read this book that maybe would benefit from the self-help, but wouldn't necessarily want to buy a self-help book. Mm. I, th- I find that section of the bookstore a bit impenetrable. And it's a bit, as I say, very earnest and kind of hippie-ish. And actually, but a lot of the stuff there I found very useful. Yeah. Is there, like, if there was kind of one message from the book, from the kind of self-help angle that you wanted to share with everyone, even those people who have yet to purchase it, like, what, what does it boil down to for you? It's pretty good. <laughs> that is in there. That is in there as, as actual advice. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think there's, there's quite a lot of stuff in there, obviously. I think it's like, it's the, it's the, all self-help books sort of say the same thing. It's prioritised later. And it's trying to find... There's only really one question in life. It's what do you want? Mm. I think wishing wells work, but I think they work way before you think they work. It's knowing what to wish for seems to be the thing in life, knowing what you want. And if you, th- like, I don't know what, if you all do the experiment now and think about what you would wish for in a wishing well, and there'll be a proportion of you that will wish for a million pounds or 10 million pounds or whatever it is, whereas that's not a real answer. That's just like you're buying time because those are tokens for the thing that you want. Mm. Well, the thing that you want in life, like, I really didn't know when I was 25. I was like working in a really boring job and I wanted a more interesting life, less ordinary. What, sorry? Sex. Yes. I should have had sex when I was 25. But I didn't know you, sir, if I'd known you. It'd be a very different life for us. Uh, but that thing of like going, you know, going after what you want. Yeah. What do you wish for? What do I wish for? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, mm. Are these, what would I wish for? Um, I suppose uh, health and well-being for my child now, rather than I think for. Yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it's such an obvious thing as a parent. You kind of go, well, it's that, that's what you want, and you want to. I suppose the thing of like my midlife crisis of fucking hair transplants and Botox and teeth. I'm hoping. They say you can't avoid death and taxes. I'm trying to... I'm hoping when the Grim Reaper comes, he won't fucking recognise me and he'll move on. So was there, was there like one defining... Was there like one key moment that changed your life from doing a, a, you know, a corporate job, an office job that you were bored by to striking out and starting to do comedy? Was it, was it like a build-up over time or was there one particular moment that you went, I've got to change? I think it was a build-up over time, but it was like I lost my religious faith as well around the same time. Mm. So I was a Catholic and then I lost that and it's kind of quite freeing in a way. I think a lot of people think of atheism as like quite a dry academic, sort of boring thing. Mm. And I viewed it as a rush of blood to the head, right? I've just got this one life suddenly. Mm. 
And it's, it's, it was really kind of exciting to go, oh, right, I've just got this one life. I better do something with it. I better take responsibility. Yeah. And it felt like taking the reins for the first time. Is that most, I've never been religious myself. That must have been terrifying to believe that there is eternal life and then suddenly realise that there isn't. Yeah, but you also lose the devil. <laughs> so if there's no that, damnation, that. if there's no damnation, I'll tell any jokes and I'll fuck him once. <laughs> That's, it's a nice thing that you lose that as well. And it's also, it kind of focuses the mind a little bit. Yeah. It's good. So, so losing religion and then I started to do comedy. I wanted to do what I wanted. Uh, with my life I wanted like I knew what I wished for I wanted a more interesting life and I wanted to laugh more and I wanted more joy and I wanted to enjoy every day I wanted every day to be like I wanted to like I work very hard now but because I found something I love doing so none of it feels like work So this is Jimmy. We're halfway through the second episode. Just a reminder, you can join up to the Insiders Club at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to get ad-free episodes, all the extra content from every episode that has it. That's hundreds of hours now. Um, and uh, also access to the Slack workspace for just £2 a month or as much as you would like to spend supporting your favourite podcast, which I'm going to assume for the purposes of this promotional blurb is this one. Let's get back to Jimmy Carr. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I view anxiety as a price worth paying. I think if you're a creative person, you tend to have circular thinking. You, your mind tends to race. If my mind isn't given something to do, I wake up. A lot of the time, more, more days than not, about five in the morning with, a, with an anxiety thing. And I you know, don't mind talking about it because I think it's the, op, it's the flip side of creativity is having anxiety in your life. I'm sort of fine with it, but... Yeah. It's, that's, it's, I mean, that's... I imagine the guy that clapped there has... You know, I'm sorry for your trouble, but I'm lucky because I'm, I'm on the edge of it where I can white-knuckle it. I'm aware a lot of people who've got anxiety problems are much worse than mine. I'm not stronger than them. Some people got it worse and they've got to take meds for it. And I think the meds, I don't mind the ups and downs of it. I don't mind that so much. With my depression as well, I don't mind white-knuckling. Some people just can't because yeah. it's just slightly more serious for them. It's, it's nuts to me that you can, like, to accept, oh, well, I'm just going to try and, particularly you, who does lots of kind of, um, you know, personal growth, kind of you've done lots of courses and neurolinguistic programming in your you, you know, yeah, younger CBT days and stuff. stuff yeah. The idea that you would accept the anxiety as a price you pay rather than go, well, couldn't I have everything and just somehow get rid of the anxiety? Surely that aspect must be fixable. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe it is. I mean, I'm, I'm doing some CBT stuff at the moment. I'm, I'm still very into kind of... That's nor- cock and ball torture, by the way. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'm super into it. It helps. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's torture. I like it. Uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. It's like, it's, if you've not heard of it, it's a really interesting thing because it's about like patterns. So if you, if you, if you have like circular thinking or if you have um, magical thinking and, and sort of feelings of dread or, or you know, anxiety, it's often like when you read about it and look at all these patterns, like nine different thought patterns, you go, oh fuck, I'm not alone. And part of the big thing, the, like the thing about talking about it, which seems to be, it's quite a zeitgeisty thing now of everyone talking about, suddenly talking about mental disorders. But of course, we've just had 18 months of being locked down. It's been a very, very strange time. So... I, think there was a, there was, I was thinking about it. There was, remember there was an ad campaign about maybe five years ago and it was like Tom Hardy and Prince Harry and people saying one in four people have suffered with mental health. They're going to need a do-over of that where it's just like <laughs> fucking everyone. Yeah. We just didn't used to call it mental health. We used to call it oh, fucking nutters. What's the weirdest uh, shit that you have been up to in pursuit of a personal growth programme. Like, you mentioned at one point in the book, you mentioned dancing the five rhythms during a thunderstorm. And I couldn't tell, knowing what I know about kind of personal growth courses and what have you, I didn't know if that was a flippant joke or a genuine thing. Yeah, no, I've done that, yeah. You've danced the five rhythms. Have you Could, never could done you that? show us a few of the rhythms now, I would, Jimmy? I would, I would. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> sure, I don't know what power you think I'm under. <laughs> Peer pressure, not really a thing for me. Um... Yeah, I've done all of that hippie stuff. I haven't done ayahuasca yet. But yeah, the, 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 you know, whatever, dancing and fucking around and doing yoga and pilates and all that. I'm very up for all of that stuff. I wrote a joke about yoga the other day. I think it's pretty good. Na- what, sorry? <laughs> that, you bald <laughs> he, I bastard. think he shouted, dance, you bald bastard. <laughs> cool. Now you have to pay him £5,000 and go on his course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my dancing is it's something to behold. <laughs> You know, you know that thing of like when you're if you're a like, you know white middle class man. I'm a dad now as well at a wedding, and you get self conscious dancing because you think everyone's looking at you. Well, if you're Jimmy Carr, they fucking are. <laughs> the downside is I remember being at a friend's wedding. My friend Stanley Tucci got married, and it was a fucking incredible wedding. It was just a beautiful ceremony. He's a really lovely guy. Felicity's wife is like gorgeous and clever and funny, and we were there and we were dancing. There was a band, and it was great, and we were dancing. And we stayed till the end and we got absolutely hammered. And as we were leaving, the band were packing up and the drummer from the band just stopped me and went, I'm a big fan of yours and you're even funny when you dance. (laughs) I had not been trying to be funny. Just on the subject of your friend Stanley Tucci and your other showbiz friends, you talk in the book a little bit about being friends with Stephen Hawking, which is fascinating the extent... I think I'd heard on the comedy circuit, on the kind of rumour mill, that you were mates with Stephen Hawking, and it's the sort of thing you go, of course he is, you're mates with Walliams, you're mates with everybody. But hearing actually... I don't think think Walliams is quite in the same category. I mean... (laughs) I fucking love in, David, in, but they're not making films of his life. No, um, for sure. In terms of a celebrity name drop, a, you know, a Tucci here, an Elton there, it's a pretty, it's a pretty name droppy book. I took I, a lot of the celebrity stories out. Did you? Why? I, I had like what the sort of I got. You know, you, you. I don't know. I don't know what you would do if you were rich and famous. I don't know what you think you would do, but I, I got rich and famous and went. I'm going to have some showbiz fucking parties because you meet all these weird people. I went fuck it, but let's do this, and then they were great. And do you invite your old mate? Do you have old mates from your previous? Yeah, it's mainly old mates, and no one remembers the old mates. 
Okay, so no that's one, the makeup. That's the guest list for a rich no and famous one that showbiz comes, party. No one that comes to a party at my house goes, oh my God, your mate from primary school, Paul was there. <laughs> no one says that. They go, fucking Stephen Hawking was there. There, there isn't a rumour mill on the comedy circuit. That, you, you hear that Matt Thick, his mate from secondary school, came to the party. It's not a story. Fair dues. Um, I enjoyed the way you described the, uh, the way you would converse with Stephen Hawking. Well, it's that thing where I don't know if you've got any... I don't know if you've got any severely disabled friends, but it's, if someone's tetraplegic, and like, the, the, the mechanism was pretty good early on and it deteriorated. So in the end, all he had was one cheek muscle that he was operating the thing with. So it was so painful at the end for him. People thought it was like, oh, he's just got to do a thing, and it was pretty quick. But like at the things when you saw him at the Comedy Awards, that had been pre, he'd pre-written that and just pressing go, or it was manually done by someone else, or remotely done, rather. Um, so it, you had to be sort of on send with him. I, I reconnected with him at like the, I think it was like the Pride of Britain Awards. So I'd known him a little bit when I was at college. He was at the same college uh, as me at Cambridge. He was teaching there. And I, he sort of gave talks. I was like studying social sciences. I'm not the brightest guy. I mean, it's a fucking bullshit degree. Um, and he was doing like physics, talks on physics and stuff. We would occasionally, you'd see him whizzing around and it was years ago when he was, he, could, he was more... <laughs> He would fucking... They're mates, that's fine. Oh, no, he's... He fucking knocks people over on the wheelchair. He used to fucking... <laughs> it properly... Back in the day, it had proper power. And then I reconnected with him at this thing and sort of just came up to him and told him some jokes. Because I had a couple of jokes about him in my set that then I told him. And then he used to come to the show. He used to come to the show in Cambridge. And you would see like a, like a, a circle. It was like a, a, a bomb blast of people around him being offended on his behalf. <laughs> and him fucking chuckling away. <laughs> He was great. He's a great leveller as well, because if you think you're a celebrity, go for dinner with him. Yeah. You're fucking invisible. <laughs> you sounded slightly like you resented that. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So what was with, my, my favourite joke about him was uh, Stephen Hawking, half man, half computer. I bet when he dies, it's a virus. <laughs> He's got medical insurance and Norton. <laughs> Pretty good game. I've got a deep one, a deep one, and then we'll do some audience questions. Yeah, sure. So the deep one is, in the book you say, take, and it, it, I, I want to make clear the, the kind of the self-help elements of it. It's not kind of hippy-diffy self-help. It's really... It's fucking funny. Yeah, it's funny, and in amongst all, kind of scattered amongst all of the funny, are really genuinely useful ways, paradigms through which to look at your life, and ways of, ways of kind of approaching how you do I, things. I, I genuinely don't think there's anything like special about me. I was about 25, and I was not depressed, I was really sad. I had quite a boring life. I was in middle management and I, I thought I'd fucked up my life. I thought this is boring and a bit of a trudge and I wanted to do something fun and I changed my life and I think the only thing that changed it was what I believed. I think your beliefs kind of dictate how life is and I think, I mean, my sort of, I think disposition is more important than position and I changed my disposition. I think like 95% of life is how you look at things. 5% is what happens to you. I genuinely believe that. So I think there'll be probably quite a lot of people in here that aspire to a more interesting life. Some people kind of go, right, I want to get out of this job and do something else. And I kind of wanted to... All of, the book is just like a... It's almost like a book review of the like 15 books I read that changed my life. That I get, kind of, you look for something that gives you a little bit of encouragement to go and do the thing that you want to do. So the deep question is... The quote from the book is, take the worst thing that your inner critic says, walk back the cruelty, and you'll find the truth about you. What does yours say? What does your inner critic say about you? Uh, I don't think I'm that good at comedy. 
I, think I mean, like, and that was an open goal and no one dared. <laughs> I think it's like, it's, it's that thing where you go, I'm definitely not, I, I've, got, I've got aspirations that I will never achieve. I think that's a very healthy thing. My aspiration, my like, true north is like, there's a Mount Rushmore of comedy. There are the greats. There are the people that kind of, you know, you're fucking George Carlin's and uh, Richard Pryor's and Billy Connolly's. There are people that are just the absolute fucking goats. And um, Peter Kay from your fine city. Um, that thing of, you go that, that thing from Bolton, but really, come on. So, <laughs> really, what have they got? Three Gregs. <laughs> Three Gregs in a service station does not a city make. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, but that thing of like going you want to be you want to be one of the greats I've got a lot I'm very privileged that I've got a job I view this job as like a lottery ticket to sort of doing that to, do, to sort of trying to be great it's a good aspiration to have because it, it stops you from kind of sitting back and just going oh well I'll just keep doing what I'm doing I'm trying to do better so is that at the heart of the anxiety though when you have the kind of if you have work related anxiety or career related anxiety is that the thought like I may have just smashed a gig to 3,000 people but I'm just not one of the greats is that like a conscious thought or is that like a background thing or is it not there anymore I don't think it's the anxiety I think that's like I think the anxiety is like it, I don't know if anyone like that guy over there is clearly the guy that applauded first a lot of us will have anxiety disorders I always think the anxiety is something within you and it attaches to whatever is going on in your life. So I had anxiety before I have a child. Now when I've got a child, I worry about my kid a lot. Yeah. So I'll wake up worrying about something with that. When, at the beginning, of, when I'd given up my job and I was not making any money, making like 20 quid a gig, gigging at the Frog and Bucket, which I fucking loved doing at the time. It was amazing. But I was worried about like my life. I thought, oh, fuck, I, mean, I was anxious about that. You, but if, like, if I'm on holiday, I'll fucking worry about nothing. I'll worry about something. It'll always attach itself. It's not the, the stimulus isn't important. The anxiety is the reaction. The 95% is you reacting to whatever the fuck it is. Uh, so, audience question here. I didn't write down any of the names, but this is an okay. audience question. You've got 30 minutes to live. What are you doing? Brackets, not a threat. <laughs> um, I, would, I would like to do... If I had 30 minutes, genuinely, I would do a show. If I could do a show and die on stage like Tommy Cooper or Ian Cognito, our mm. friend. I think that's the fucking way to go. Mm-hmm. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a dignity to that and there's something fucking magnificent, you know, dying with your boots on. You know that thing with, like, statues? You know you get statues of, like, uh, military guys? Yeah. And they're on horseback? Oh, yeah. You know what the code is on that? Oh, it's to do with if the horse is rearing up, yeah. they died in battle so if, or if the horse is, If the horse has got two legs up, it means they died in battle. If it's got one leg up, it means they died of injuries from battle. And if they're all four legs on the ground, they died in a bed. <laughs> I think die in battle, that's the fucking way to go. So, and a gig is also, that's kind of my flow state. And that's what the book is about, flow states. When you get into a state where you're not really conscious of time, you're just like doing what you love doing and you're lost in it. For many people, it's like sports, could be painting, could be running, could be hobbies, whatever it is. For, for the very lucky few, it's our job. My job is like a flow state and I love it. And so being on stage would be the most magnificent thing for me. Leads us to the next one. What do you do before a show when you're backstage? Go through your material, have a cup of tea, snort coke off an escort's tits. I'd like to know. That is an audience question and a verbatim quote. It's a good. Uh, uh, it's always the hip bone. <laughs> the, no, I'm. I'm. Quite, I try and be as cool as possible. I mean, Gav, my, my lovely tour manager, who's been with me 18 years, is is like. I turn up at gigs like five minutes before and try and try and be as cool as possible. I try and be like Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra would like halfway through a fucking meal and walk on. I can't do that. 
I can't eat for like two hours before a show, but I, uh, I try and be as relaxed as possible. I think you do everything better when you're relaxed. What's your least favourite place to gig, i.e. the place where you get the most heckles? And I think that's an interesting assumption, that the place where you yeah. get heckled the most would be your least favourite place. Mm. I don't no, know there true. wouldn't be. I don't like... Sometimes when you gig in... There's a few places in, like, Scandinavia where they're... Inc- I mean, the audiences are amazing. They're very, very polite. But it's not like playing here where you get a lot of people heckling and people get it. So at the end of the show, you can do a show and think, oh, it's, it's all right. Like fine, but nothing special. And then the end, they, they clap like it's fucking. They're on their feet, and it's raw. It's all at the end of the show because they don't have the same sort of dynamic. Whereas I'd much rather a shouty, combative, even kicking the people out. It's like a shared experience. It's live, <laughs> it, but it's that thing. I mean, I feel bad for the security guy, but it's like tonight only happened tonight. That's it. It's special. It'll be done when it's done. Uh, not filmed. You'll never see it again. Great. I love that. Have you ever been bested? Like, not in the sense that sometimes you, you give it to someone, someone says something that's really funny, and you go, oh, great, nice one. Have you ever kind of locked wits with someone and come off worse? Yeah. I think, I, I did a gig called Late and Live in Edinburgh, which is like, doesn't start till one in the morning, everyone's hammered drunk, goes till like three in the morning, it's crazy. And I went on, and this was, I was just kind of making a name for myself in Edinburgh, it's a tough gig to do, and I was doing fucking great. I was flying. I was having a lovely time. I was about ten minutes into the gig, and... I don't know what I was talking about. Like, it doesn't even matter what I was talking about. I was halfway through a joke, and a guy went, my mum died of cancer. And the whole room's like, the fuck is going on? And I went, and I went well, I wasn't talking about mums, and I wasn't talking about cancer. And he went, no, but it was funnier than this. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> Fucking, like... There's no comeback to that. <laughs> See, I think the best one I ever heard in Edinburgh, which wasn't, it wasn't me, it was a, a friend was doing a gig. Funny guy. He was doing a gig above him pub in Edinburgh, and it was like, it was, a, it was not a great, the gig was not going fabulously. He was dying on his ass. It's like above a pub, and there's about 19 people in, and they're drunk, and it's hot, and they're sleepy, and this guy's shit. And <laughs> one of the guys turned to his friend and whispered. He didn't mean it as a heckle, but it carried in the room. He just went, there used to be a pool table in here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Devastating. Devastating. Um, someone says, I've recently turned 29. If you could go back to 29, what would you do differently? Uh, well, I, I had my. I, think, I, don't, I don't think. I genuinely. But the thing, the thing in the book or whatever, um, and some people don't need it, they're doing what they love. Great, good on you. You know, if you want to change, I think there's stuff in there about like, if you if you feel that you're 29, you want to change your life. I think you can, and I think I was. I didn't think I could when I was like 25. Mm. I thought that was it. It was set in stone. You work in an oil company in marketing, and actually, I changed my beliefs about what was possible, and that changed fucking everything. And I believed that I could. And there's nothing special, magical about me. I hadn't written a joke till I was 25, mm. and I found something that I love doing. And I just worked hard at it. I think there's a lot of myths in society about people being incredibly talented or incredibly hardworking. It's all fucking nonsense. It's always a mix of the two. Yeah. Always. Uh, you, could, you know, and that thing of like, you could do anything. You can't do everything. You have to fucking focus on the one thing you're good at, your edge. 
So, like, I think school gets it totally wrong. School's, like, trying to get kids that are shit at physics to get a C. No one needs a kid with a C in physics. Oh, we need someone to do physics badly for us. No, fucking specialise. If you've got a thing that you're good at, fucking put everything into that. We live in a specialist economy. That's a great answer. It's a great answer. Slightly, uh, slightly off-the-wall question here. If you could form a supergroup of comedians, who would you choose, what would they play, and what is the band called? And that, <laughs> the end of this message was, from Sam on the front row. Shabba! <laughs> Shabba. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, uh, the, I think we do that, don't we? Is that not what Big Fat Quiz is? No? What, you're saying playing, playing the instruments? Um, I don't know. I did backing vocals recently for Ed Sheeran. True story. Genuinely a true story. Genuinely true. Well, you could Google it, man. I'm on, I'm on visiting hours. I'm, I'm on the new single. No. <laughs> I know it's weird... I got a weird life. Yeah, Is I'm that on... the voice of Ed Sheeran? That man? <laughs> I'm on. I'm on visiting hours. It's me and Kylie Minogue doing the backing vocals. Yeah, yeah. Uh, fucking Google it right now. <laughs> Google it right now. <laughs> I'm only doing it for the PRS check. Um, uh, and one of my best friends is a guy called Johnny McDaid that used to be in Snow Patrol and now writes with Ed. And uh, I really loved the song. I thought it was a beautiful song about... It's actually about grief, about Ed's mother. And I listened to it about six months ago and really liked it. And, uh, and he said, oh, you can do backing vocals on it. You get a PRS check. Lovely. I've, just, I've literally just Googled it. Ed Sheeran reveals he hired comedian Jimmy Carr as a backing singer for his new album, Equals. That's fresh, Google. That's fresh. So, all I've got for you is, is uh, I, would be, uh, I would be on backing vocals. <laughs> I mean, it's backing vocals. <laughs> do it. Huh? You, you brought it up. You've got to I do it. I was showing off. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. Imagine if that worked. Imagine, <laughs> imagine if I was the kind of guy that went, oh, well, they seem to want to hear it. Start spreading. The no. <laughs> Right, I should probably tell some jokes to these okay. good people. Um, Let's do it. Stuart Goldsmith, everyone. Um, thank, thank you, very you much. so much. Thanks so Cheers. much, man. So that's that. What a marathon two hours that was. Um, I might, I mentioned on the, on the end of part one, I might, if I get round to it, uh, I might release like a whole one, you know, warts and all, kind of heckles and all. Maybe the Newcastle one. I don't think any of that made it onto to this edit. I'm not, I can't remember if it did, but maybe you could kind of you could see one hurdle all the way through. Um, so that was from various live iterations of myself interviewing Jimmy, and it was such a fun environment in which to work with him because he is the master of most of the environments in which he works. Like I have absolutely seen him. I've seen him work on a TV show where he basically ended up directing the camera crew because he's probably got hundreds more hours experience than the director. Um, so, you know, you see him on panel shows, which often, it turns out, were devised by him in the first place, um, or, you know, just absolutely rinsing his audience at his gigs. So it was really interesting for me to meet, I mean, I've met him before, but to meet him afresh when he was a bit nervous. And when I first turned up for the very first one of these, which was in Manchester, it formed the bulk, I think, of this episode, 
I was backstage and I got there and Gav, his brilliant tour manager, hello Gav, um, I kind of turned up thinking, well, this is, I mean, I'm excited about this. It's pretty nervous. I've not done anything quite like this before. And I think Gav said to me, uh, Jimmy says, have you, he's on his way. He says, have you got a plan? And I really relaxed. I was like, oh yeah, I do have a plan. And now I'm more in my comfort zone than he is in a kind of way. So I hope I, hope I gave of my best there, uh, attempting to steer Jimmy uh, round to, sort of steer him in between the uh, the anecdotal stuff and the stuff that has been sharpened into kind of almost stand-up bits, anecdotal-type stand-up bits, into areas with which he was less familiar. It was really, really fun to meet him and to, to experience him in a, in a whole different way. But that will have to do you for now because I, there's not going to be a post amble As you can hear, I'm really bugged up and I cannot bear to hear myself back in the edit of this, so I'm sure you can't either. Thank you once again for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, if this is your first experience of it, if you're new to it through Jimmy, um, then we have almost 400 episodes to get your teeth into. Go to comedianscomedian.com. There is a search bar where you can type the name of your favourite comedian and find out whether either they've been on, which is likely these days, um, or the episodes in which someone else has uh, been interviewed and they talked about that person. So we've got a pretty exhaustive tagging and categorization section up there. Or you can just email me info at comedianscomedian.com and say, hey, have you thought about getting Stuart Lee on? And I can say, yes, I had him on X number of years ago. He's on this a number of episodes and I will do the work for you. All right. Happy now. Thank you. Thank you once again to Jimmy. Thanks to Nathan Wood for producing the show. Jake Crossland did several hard yards at logging all of these different episodes. Um, Peter Dobbing was your podcast consultant as ever. Um, and uh, I might demote him. Podcast Goblin. Let's go. Peter, Peter Dobbing was your, your podcast Goblin. And also the music was by Rob Smout. And thank you for listening. Thank you for listening this year. I'm going to take a little break now. I always remember having a Counting Crows live album. At the end of the album, Adam Juritz said... Um, uh, okay, we're gonna go- thanks everybody. We're gonna go back into the studio. So anytime I stop a thing, I think of myself as going back into the studio. But the point here is that I'm going to not be in the studio for the whole of January, and uh, we've got we've already got a cracker with Diane Spencer in the can, so that one will probably come out in February. Um, but we will speak. We the royal we will speak to you then. Have a wonderful Christmas. Have a great January. Uh, stay in touch. Info at comedianscomedian dot com or at comcompod on various forms of social media, and have yourself a merry little Christmas. Hey, does anyone else do this? Do you, do you ever elide one song into another? Like every Christmas, I find myself thinking and singing to myself, Well, the weather outside is frightful, but the fire is so delightful. But before we let the herd out the gate, make sure all the levels are straight out the jungle, the jungle, the brothers, the brothers. Anyone else do that? Happy Christmas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 